Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Hello, everybody. This is Eric in the UK. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic with just over 10 months of sobriety, for which I'm never sufficiently grateful. I'm very happy to have the opportunity today to be the speaker on today's meeting, and I pray that I'll be able to convey all of my thoughts and uh, following the format of how it was, uh, what it was like when I got into the essay rooms, and what it's like now. And So with that, I'll uh, start from the beginning. I often talk about a shadow world whenever I refer to my state of mind associated with acting out. I describe my alternate reality in terms of being a dark side, right? A place without logic, reason, or common sense where there's no control over the thoughts, the fantasies, imaginations and it all goes unchecked. Um, I didn't get there overnight, and it's a place um, in which anything goes. And uh, so I literally feel like I have two separate entities or personalities living in my brain, and one prevails when I'm sober and the other when I'm acting out. Um, So from very early on, I remember my mother had a lot of health issues, and she would often be laid up for days or weeks at a time, And there's quite an age gap between me and my next older sibling. I, being the youngest, uh, had a lot of alone time. And so I'd have to learn to self-entertain. And uh, however, at a certain age, my mom started feeling better and uh, even took uh, daycare children into our home to help supplement the income. And I remember feeling jealousy and greed and resentment towards all of these other children who were intruders in my home. I felt they were robbing me of my alone time with my mom. I would get territorial and even violent with some of these children. And my temper was very large for being maybe three or four years old at the time. And so my poor mom didn't know what to do and would often just have to send me to my room away from the other kids. And it was in these extended period timeouts that I began to fashion this escape for myself, an alternate reality where I could shut out the noise of the world and I could imagine a world where I didn't get yelled at or spanked or sent to timeout. And it was, it was wonderful. It was a place of no punishment, of no consequences, no rules, where I could just do what I wanted and I didn't have to share or tell the truth or I would never get in trouble. And so I can remember going into that frame of mind um, whenever I didn't get my way or if I'd get caught um, and I, I could escape from the moment 
um, and dull the reality of what was going on instead of um, trying to please my mom and dad by not doing it anymore, I would plot revenge and I would, I would run different scenarios through my mind over and over again of how I could get away with it next time without getting caught. And I'm pretty sure um, that I'm the reason that my, my parents didn't continue with the daycare business after just, a, just several months. And so, um, but uh, growing up just a little more, I, I'd always been a large child. I was usually the biggest kid in my class. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do because I resorted to food um, as, as another form of escape. And I, I was conditioning myself um, as a way to, to get away um, by, by using that and, and in order to create a safe place. Um, in the, in the pantry or, or with my, my sweets and treats instead of uh, having to face reality. And so uh, there came a certain point when uh, some neighbor kids uh, had introduced me to uh, pornography for the first time. I believe I was about six years old. And uh, this opened up a whole new world for this, this uh, alternate reality. I, I remember early on when when I was first exposed, just how it felt so forbidden. How I I always had considered myself a, a good kid, and I knew that well, good kids aren't supposed to do this kind of thing. And yet, I was sworn to secrecy by uh, some of these others for fear of getting in trouble. And so, um, because I. I of course, didn't want to get in trouble. I did the only thing I knew how to do, and I buried it deep, and I went to my alternate reality, my shadow world, and I just continued to stew and think about what I'd seen and um, found ways to uh, get access to it over at friends' houses and just found any excuse I could to go to go elsewhere. And uh, it was also about the same time when an older um child or barely adolescent had uh, decided to invite me to participate in acting out behavior with uh, with another person. And so I, from that age, sought opportunities to, to act out with other children uh, close to my own age and um, really uh, became very manipulative and, um, and lusting. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was just this compulsive behavior that I would look for it at any opportunity I could uh, for, for the while. And so it was at that point that uh, I, felt, I felt that I wasn't acting the way that I, that I imagined. Um, and so I, I can't recall exactly when I stopped doing uh, lustful things with other people. Um, probably uh, nine or ten years of age, but the the obsession never went away, and uh, I didn't really pursue acting out with with youth anymore. It was also about the time that my family moved from the only home I'd ever known uh, to a different state, and I had. Um, um, oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't mention. I, I live in the UK, but I'm from I'm from the United States. If you can tell by my accent, so I I um couldn't couldn't really satisfy 
my my acting out behavior, um, especially once uh, you know fast forward a few years uh, through puberty and uh, the discovery of of masturbation, and then the advent of uh, the internet and having a computer in the home. And this was before filters were really a thing, and so I had the um, kind of the world at my fingertips and the ability to access the pornography for the first time. And I felt like uh, I should I should tell my dad or I should you know at least confess uh, what what I've I'd been doing because I was raised in a very religious household and in my faith tradition and it's um, you know important to you know confess one's wrongs and so I, I approached my dad about it and he said he understood you know that my my had the desire to look at these things and he told me if I would pray enough that God would help me take the desire away and I'd be able to withstand the temptation and so I did I, I tried praying a lot and it, it got better for a while um, but it didn't it didn't really take away the compulsion and so it persisted all all through my adolescence and uh, just this uh, attitude of of being scum. Just why, if I'm if I'm trying to be faithful, I'm trying to be righteous and do do what I must. Can I not overcome the uh, lustful thoughts and the uh, compulsive behavior that I must act out via pornography, masturbate, and all? everything else of that nature and it even accumulated in some uh, self-harm that uh, that to this day I still deal deal with some side effects of, of those uh, uh, time periods and so uh, feeling hopeless and like I was at the end of my rope even you know, and especially during high school when I was still a uh, very overweight and and had very few friends. It just didn't. The outlook on life did not seem very appealing or, or uh, hopeful to me. And so I was uh, invited to join the the wrestling team, and uh, so I thought that would be you know a worthwhile thing to do, and it did. It helped my self esteem quite a bit as I dropped the weight and I. Um, you know, became more involved in a, a team, but it never did take away the um, the lust, and it uh, just just continued to thrive and to, to be fueled. And so, fast forward a few more years um, in my life, and I was uh, dating my my now wife and striving to you know, keep myself free of it and white knuckle as much as I could. At this this point, I had never considered it to be an addiction, just this bad habit that I couldn't seem to overcome by myself. And uh, the very notion that, that I could have an addiction or, or to call myself an addict of any kind was, you know, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. I, I, was, I would refuse to, to even go there um, because in my mind, addicts were people who were just um, in the slums and in rehab centers and, you know, their, their lives were in shambles. And for the most part, my life was pretty good. I, I had grown up in a, a decent home with uh, plenty of opportunities and, and uh, what most would consider to be loving environments. So it just didn't compute really how, how I would still be uh, resorting to all this escapism uh, when my situation wasn't really all that, that bad per se. Uh, from the world standards, but I also got into uh, habits of toxic uh, self-talk, negative self-talk, and um, 
perfectionism, as well as debilitating comparisons between myself and other people. Um, like how I would I would see others who had all of these successes or they got the scholarships and, and other things and this uh, would trigger feelings of of uh, self doubt and would would only serve to escalate these uh, you know uh, feelings of restlessness and, and irritability and and create these little resentments and I had the worst habit um, all growing up of talking bad about other people behind their back, as if somehow bringing them down would make me feel a little bit better about myself um, because I was you know, on the inside fighting this battle every single day and punishing myself um, by, by thinking just the worst thoughts um, that if, if somehow I would you know, uh, be able to break the cycle, if I, if I just... Um, scolded myself enough or that it would finally click or it might might finally I'm, uh, come to the point where I uh, didn't need to do it anymore because I'd made my choice. And although um, that, that worked for periods of time, uh, I became a periodic. I, I was first introduced to um, recovery meetings when an ecclesiastical leader uh, nudged me in that direction. This was about a year and a half after I'd been married. And, and of course, um, my wife was devastated to, to know that her husband had uh, all of these issues with lust and pornography and masturbation and just couldn't comprehend why it was a thing, why, why I would need to resort to that. And, of course, it brought all sorts of feelings of insecurity and betrayal and uh, lots of hurt in the relationship. And so trying to make things right, I, I did seek help from, from my ecclesiastical leader who said I should try um, attending some of our church-sponsored addiction recovery meetings. Um, so this was probably six years ago, and I uh, started to find some help. Um, I, I began uh, working with a sponsor who introduced me to the 12 steps, which are an adaptation from the 12 steps of AA. And I began uh, seeing a difference. I, I, I began what I felt uh, for the first time having a change of heart, that I, I finally had the tools necessary to be able to combat um, the incessant uh, voices uh, pulling me in every which way um, to, to think these thoughts that were just um, uh, all, all in the attitude of fantasy and, and of acting out uh, behavior. Uh, some things which I, I did pursue and other things which just continued to taint my, my view and my perceptions of reality and continue to block me, me from being engaged and present in relationships with my family and with my wife and eventually with my children. Uh, because uh, after that initial exposure to the recovery programs, I did uh, obtain about a year of time in, in what I would call abstinence. I, uh, I went through the motions. I, I thought I was being sincere, and I thought that I had a pretty good idea of how to surrender and what it took in order to obtain uh, sobriety and to live life in recovery. Uh, but... As, uh, as it states in the, the literature, um, I began resting on my laurels. I went through the program, and for, for all I knew, it's one of those um, types of programs where at the end you get a certificate of achievement, and frame it, put it on the wall, and, and get on with my life. 
but uh, through trial and sad experience, I've found that that is not the case. This is not something that I can simply treat like like a um, like a like a tumor that can be excised and and then you know, I'm done with it. It's it's this. Um, this addiction is an allergy, just like it says in uh, the doctor's opinion that I am allergic to lust, and that I, through trial and and trying to take back my own will, and then and all of these false starts over the past several years have uh, come to learn that I indeed am powerless. That um, the the first two steps were always my problem, and if I, if I ever got into uh, a period of what I would consider white knuckle sobriety, um, then it was only a matter of time. And I was always looking over my shoulder and just, I could feel the restlessness that all oh, the next slip must be right around the corner because it's been X amount of time. And I didn't really have the peace that the program promised. And yet I, I for some reason, couldn't put two and two together or I wasn't willing to see how my, um, my desire to continue lusting like a gentleman that I would somehow be like a normie, like a, like one of those normal people who didn't have the same obsessions or to deal with the same problems as me that um, maybe I was different from everybody else, but that, that is not the case. I'm, I'm not a special exception uh, to the rule. I'm just powerless. And so I really did have to hit rock bottom, and, and for me that was last summer. And basically, my my wife had had enough. That was um, as as many betrayals and and um, as lies and manipulations that you know, that uh, just the prospects were not looking good. And I was deployed at the time. I had um, several days if not weeks of zero contact with my wife and children just because uh, she she couldn't even um, deal with uh, deal with me at that time and so I had a lot of time to pause and to reflect and to think and that's when I first discovered these phone meetings uh, from Sexaholics Anonymous and although the addiction recovery programs that I had attended at my um, my church were helpful I'd never felt quite at home. It didn't deal with my particular flavor of addiction, which is, is lust and to be a sexaholic. And so that, that really resonated with me. And I found fellowship. I found friends in, in these rooms. I was, wasn't too sure of myself at the beginning, but I kept coming back. And, and all of these cliche phrases, you know, one day at a time, and it works if you work it. It, it seemed nice. And I, I was, but I was still a bit skeptical, not so much of the program, but of my, my own ability to do it and to make, make it happen. Um, because I would get so preoccupied about fu the future and, and drawing up these catastrophic um, scenarios of, of what might happen, of how my, my family would fall apart and how my career would would um, be in shambles if, if anybody knew and, and this and this and that. But ultimately, those, those little catchphrases, uh, they work. Um, and it wasn't until 
uh, a, f a few months of, of coming to the SA uh, phone meetings that I, I really started to grasp uh, what it meant. And, and by working through my step zero of, uh, of just getting my habit patterns in check and uh, coming to terms with what it takes, um, was I finally able to start working the steps. And so with a, a sponsor, I again went through the 12 steps, um, but this time, uh, having created a series of little commitments that I needed to do every day in order to keep myself in a fit spiritual condition. And it doesn't happen overnight. I can't overstate that enough. It is not something that um, just was like a light switch, where once I made up my mind, the rubber met the road and I was on my way. I had plenty of... Um, self-doubts and, and experiences where I didn't, I uh, wasn't too sure of myself or I would revert back to my old ways of thinking um, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't worthy to be in these rooms with all of these amazing people who had years and years of sobriety that I, I could never measure up uh, to them. But all I found was unabounding love and, and compassion and willingness to listen and to to share their experiences and strength and hope and that that was a lifeline for me so some of these um, commitments and i'll talk about what they are uh, for me i'll speak for myself is that i began to journal morning and night and this was my opportunity to reflect about the day about what my plan was i needed a plan every morning about how I was going to spend my time. And I also needed to show gratitude. And I often will include a list of things for which I'm grateful in this uh, journal format. And um, we'll also talk about blessings that I've ob observed and felt throughout the day or other feelings, thoughts, and impressions that have come to me. And so taking that time, it requires an extra solid hour every day waking up early and taking some extra time before going to bed in order to get it all out onto my uh, Google document, which is how I keep my journal. And uh, so that's, that's one way is another is, is making at least three meetings a week. And so, and often more if I can manage with my schedule. Um, and, and so that's just uh, hands down something that I, that I need to do. And with my uh, being deployed, even as we speak, I, I don't have the access to face-to-face -face meetings, or um, they're they're very inconvenient, several hours away. That the phone meetings have been my uh, lifeline. So that's another thing. And as well with my particular uh, affinity uh, or my addiction to to lust, to pornography, to masturbation, the really important thing has been sacrificing my internet um, usage and and TV privileges. So while I'm here in the hotel, I will take the remote and, and give it to the front desk. Uh, I would um, not turn the TV on at all. Um, and I have very, uh, I have a filter on my computer for now. I know that several, that people say that they don't even need a filter on their computer because the filter's in their heart or they, they have reached that point. I'm still not quite there yet. So it, it helps um, for, for where I'm at. I also, um, have found how important it is to make daily outreach phone calls. And uh, even when things are going just fine, 
it's uh, often in, in these situations when I make my outreach phone calls is um, it'll be just as much benefit to the person uh, who I call and they'll tell me, thank you for calling me. I needed this. And, and I say, well, you know, I needed it too. And so it's, it's just how we build each other up and, and find fellowship and friendship um, through, through these struggles. And it, I think uh, a person who shared back in July of last year was called them fire drill phone calls. And that uh, in order to strengthen those muscles, that in the moment of need, it, it's a lot easier to pick up that 300-pound phone and make the call if I've been in a habit of doing it every day. And I have a list of people that I can trust and that I can reach out to. So. Um, that, that's been another key thing uh, of keeping a commitment. Another big and important one is, has been prayer and meditation to um, increase my conscious contact with, with my higher power, who I call God. And uh, he's been with me every step of the way. Um, as I turn my life and my will over to him, um, he, he has so much more in store for me, uh, for my life, than I ever could hope to achieve on my own. And I'm only catching a small glimpse of, of what that means as he begins to work the miracle of recovery in my life. And for the first time, uh, ever since starting the, the road to recovery over six years ago, I consider this to be that positive sobriety that it talks about in the solution. Now, this is the, the, the life that he had intended for me to live. And um, I can only live that if I'm in tune, um, just to be able to receive the, the spiritual guidance by, by having that connection, just like it states in step 11. And then also to, to serve and take opportunities just like this today to share my experience, strength, and hope, um, and, and also to sponsor other individuals. That has been such a rewarding process, and it, it really, after after I've had a chance now to sponsor another person or two, uh, it's not an inconvenience or a burden um, to, to do, to take those phone calls and to help walk somebody through the steps because I am myself, I'm reminded of where I once was, where I never would want to return again and, and just have that daily contact with the program, with the literature, with the, the principles that um, when applied uh, on a daily basis have helped me to be able to achieve this, uh, this new life, this new way of being, this new way of thinking. On occasion, I'll still get uh, a lust hit uh, where a rogue thought will enter my mind and I'll have, have to identify it and in a very uh, submissive way uh, Imagine as if that thought or that fantasy or whatever it is, is, is like a balloon and that it's uh, this sphere that I can um, conceptualize within my mind and make a decision to let it go. And then in a very meditative kind of way with my eyes closed, I will, I will say a prayer that God, I, I am giving this away to you. you know, please um, remove it from me that it will no longer cloud my vision or burden my my mind and then as I imagine it floating away he, he's able to take it 
and that's a very childish way of thinking. I'm, I'm still emotionally stuck, I think, in that, that very childlike um, condition where I was when I was first exposed to, to pornography and lust. And, and so I have to sometimes take it all the way back so I can relate, so I can process what is what it is that is driving these lustful thoughts and these behaviors, this escapism, and then be able to re- release it. Um, and so that has been an instrumental thing. Uh, another tool in my toolbox of recovery um, is that mindfulness, that meditation, and, and uh, being really able to rely on my uh, my God to to make that difference and and take away what I couldn't remove on my own. Um, so I've found balance. I have found um, peace. And not every day is a, a walk in the park, but that's that's really what it's all about, is um, being able to rely on these meetings, these, uh, these tools, and um, uh, being able to reach out and help other people along their road to recovery. One of my favorite illustrations of addiction recovery is that of a group of individuals, men and women, who are climbing up a, a steep and crag-filled rock face of, of like a mountain, and one ahead of the other is reaching back to, to clasp hands with those who are behind to help pull them up along, and likewise the person in front of them is help reaching back to pull them up on their trek uh, to the to the top of the slope, and so when I think of it that way, I'm I'm humbled, and I'm grateful uh, to be linked in the chain of fellowship and of recovery with all all the rest of you. And I, I it wouldn't be possible without everybody else on these calls, and um, so that that is my story, my experience, my strength, and, and my hope that uh, as we all continue to take steps, you know, and sometimes it might be two steps forward, one step back uh, towards that, that trudging that road of happy destiny. I really do hope to, to meet, um, meet you along that road and uh, that we can rejoice uh, together. So with that, I'll go ahead and pass back to the moderator, and I thank you for your time.